we welcome the inaugural edition of WPKN's monthly labor report. And each month we'll do something that is really sorely lacking in the corporate media. We'll review the current or impending labor actions, contract negotiations, and strikes. We'll look at the strength of the labor market, the prospects for an increase in the unionized workforce, and we'll look at any policy developments that would impact working people and their prospects for gaining union representation. And we're going to do all that with the help of Michael Zweig, economist, labor historian, professor emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and author of numerous articles and books, including The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, and What's Class Got to Do With It?, a collection of essays on numerous labor-related topics. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us and for kicking off this uh, monthly labor report where you will join us each month. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for inaugurating this uh, and uh, including me in it. Absolutely. Wouldn't, wouldn't have picked anybody else. Since this is Labor Day Tuesday, let's begin by reviewing the history of Labor Day and how and when it began and why it ended up actually being celebrated in early September rather than on May Day, also known as International Workers' Day. Well, Labor Day actually began as an informal uh, labor event that uh, began here in New York City in uh, 1882 when uh, the carpenters uh, went to the Labor Council in New York and uh, suggested to have a big march and rally celebrating labor. And uh, they did that. And then they did it again in 1883. Uh, and it became something of a tradition just informally within the labor movement to uh, specifically initiate it here in New York. But it got picked up uh, around the country. And in 1887 was the first law that actually gave official recognition to a thing called Labor Day. And that was done in the state of Oregon. And also in 1887, uh, there were several other states, Colorado and New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts, uh, that uh, followed suit and, and declared an official day to recognize labor and labor's contributions to society. And that was done, again, at the initiative of uh, the labor movement itself. It became a national holiday and set on the first Monday of September, uh, actually by an act of Congress in 1894, that... Grover Cleveland, President Grover Cleveland, signed into law to make it a national holiday on that date. Now, at the same time or parallel to that, there was the development of what we call May Day as an international labor holiday, which was initiated, again, by the labor movement, but in this case, uh, to recognize the fight for the eight-hour day and the Haymarket Massacre in Chicago in 1886. And so what you had was this spontaneous uh, development of pro, sort of a labor recognition that was recognized uh, in Labor Day. But then there was also a more radical, uh, more militant labor 
celebration for the eight-hour day specifically, which was in commemoration of the Haymarket Massacre in Chicago in 1886. So the labor movement had uh, these two different ways to go. And, of course, the left and the more radical and the more militant and the more class-conscious sections of the labor movement gravitated towards May Day, which never did get the official imprimatur of the legislature, of course, because it was an anti-capitalist, pro-working-class, militant demonstration and and, and celebration. So Labor Day became the official government-sanctioned labor uh, event, and it's been that way since the end of the the 19th century. Thanks for that that update. And I I wanted to also mention that I think it was during the Eisenhower administration— that uh, something called Loyalty Day was proposed and I think began to be observed by probably the few, not the many, on May 1st in the United States. It's a day, quoting here, it is a day set aside uh, for the reaffirmation of loyalty to the United States and for the recognition of the heritage of American freedom. And they picked May 1st, obviously, to counter International Workers' Day. So, it's interesting that in that description, there's no mention of labor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it doesn't even try. But they already had a Labor Day, and that was their yeah. their recognition. And, of course, the, the Liberty Day or Freedom Day uh, in the Eisenhower administration was coming up just when there was all the anti-communism and the Cold War. And that's when uh, Under God got put into this um, pledge you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's what I learned when I went to school. But then they put in, under God, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. It, that was also done in the 1950s, and that's when also, in God we trust, was put on all the paper currency. Mm-hmm. So that all was part of the rise of kind of a religious anti-communism that was uh, sweeping the country at that time. Ah, really fascinating. Why don't we begin by, as we promised, giving sort of update on the ongoing strikes, pending labor actions, and contract negotiations that are happening as we speak, and maybe put it in the context of this upsurge in labor ac- action, militant labor action, union drives, some some very successful Others, as you've, I think, pointed out in our last conversation, elections have been won, but union contracts have not been negotiated in many cases. But tell us uh, what's going on at this uh, time when the working class and the middle class are trying to dig themselves out of a huge uh, economic trough, weighed down still by some pretty bad inflation. Well, the inflation is actually much reduced. Yes. Last year at this time, it was on an annual rate of 9%. Now it's at an annual rate of 3%. And we still have an unemployment rate that's well below 4%. So it's really quite a remarkable uh, situation. Uh, but it is a situation with a tight labor market where there really is a lot of militant labor action. The Los Angeles teachers uh, struck earlier uh, in uh one major uh, uh, 
contract uh, and the in Los Angeles now the hospitality workers uh, United here local 11 is still on strike I think in 60 different hotels in downtown Los Angeles very uh, solid very militant uh, strike of hotel uh, workers out there uh, the teamsters course settled with UPS they got a really good contract they did away with the two-tier wage system that had been imposed uh, earlier uh, in the uh, period of extreme attack on labor and uh, the two-tier system involves having new hires come in at a much lower rate than existing workforce the idea was that you didn't have to penalize the existing workforce but they're the ones who are going to vote on the contract so you leave them relatively harmless in wages, but you take it all out on the uh, new hires, and that puts downward pressure on the existing workers as well. So the Teamsters went to, to UPS in a very militant stance and averted a strike by winning a really positive contract. And they had a tactic that was, I thought, really quite an interesting thing. They had practiced demonstrations. They had practiced pickets so that people would get to know what it's like to be on a picket line. And so they had their people going out on a practice strike, not when they were working, but when they were off, but still in front of the facility, marching and chanting and handing out flyers and practicing what it would be to be on strike. And that really did convey to the management uh, at UPS that this was really serious, and they had to really take these workers seriously for the first time in a long time. And they got a really good contract out of that. Right now, the UAW, the auto workers, are in negotiations. I think the contract runs out the 17th of this month, in the middle of this month in September. And if they don't get a contract, they're really talking about going on strike for the big three, uh, GM, Ford, and uh, what's no longer called uh, Chrysler, but I think that's called Stellantis now or something like that. And that... Again, the UAW has new leadership that's more militant, that's more class conscious, and that is less likely to just sit back and, and uh, negotiate by uh, agreeing to all kinds of concessions. Sort of the, the symbolic indication of that for Sean Fain, who's the new president of the UAW, typically in the history of those negotiations, the uh, president of the UAW and the president of General Motors or Ford would get together and shake hands at the beginning of the negotiation. Fain wouldn't shake hands. He said, I'm not here to shake hands. I'm here to make trouble. And you guys are going to sign a contract and we'll shake hands when it's done. But uh, we're not going into this shaking anybody's hand except our own. And, you know, with raised fists and all the rest. So, there is this period right now of uh, of really serious militants, and we see it also with the uh, TV and film writers and uh, the SAG after uh, strike. For the first time, they're going out together, the writers and the actors. First time in 60 years that they've done that, and they're out for months now, and they're going to continue to be. They say. And uh, they're fighting for their survival because the economics of the uh, entertainment industry has changed so much that uh, these new workers, uh, these writers and actors, don't get residuals anymore when their products are streamed. And uh, that's a huge part of their income. So they're uh, really put their backs against it 
fighting for their lives and their livelihoods and their careers. And as they like to say, you know, when we think about movie stars, we think about, you know, Meryl Streep and uh, Tom Hanks, and they make millions of dollars. But if you ever go to a movie or watch a movie on TV, at the end you see that scroll of all those people who were making the movie, all those people who were electricians and drivers and uh, script people. Those are all people who make not much money, and they are really militantly demanding a piece of uh, some prosperity. So it's really quite a different scene now in the in uh, the labor market and the labor movement compared to what it was uh, two or three years ago or even five or ten years ago. Michael, it's interesting. I was thinking about a program we did a, probably about a year ago when the the topic was with the change of administration, the there's an opportunity for the new president to appoint new members to the National Labor Relations Board. And I think that or two or three progressives were, were put on the board at that time. And I raised the question to you, what difference does the NLRB make? I mean, can it actually create uh, something positive for working people? And but you said, absolutely. And so now we have some news about the National Labor Relations Board's new framework for union representation proceedings. Can you just tell us what that's all about? The news here, and it's very important, is that the National Labor Relations Board, which is the agency of government, it's part of the Labor Department uh, at the federal level that administers collective bargaining in the private sector throughout the country. It doesn't affect public sector workers at all, not teachers or firefighters or anybody who's in, you know, on government payroll at any level. But private sector workers are covered in their uh, labor rights by procedures that are enforced by this National Labor Relations Board. The law, the National Labor Relations Act, dates all the way back to the New Deal in 1935. And it set up procedures by which workers could hand in cards, signed cards by people working in a shop or in a company. And if they had a certain number of cards signed, 30% of the workforce, they could have an election. And the National Labor Relations Board would supervise that election. And then the management and the workers would be governed by the outcome of the election. Well, that's all very fine and good, but when it comes time to have an election over a period of weeks or months as the election is coming up to the actual vote, management can fire the union organizers, they can do all kinds of things which are called unfair labor practices, and the only thing that the union can do is go to the National Labor Relations Board and say, hey, you know, these people are doing unfair labor practices. The board will investigate, and then they say, yes, yeah, that's true. But until now, all that would happen was that the management would be just scolded, and they would be told, uh, you know, you really have to do it right. Well, fine, that's no teeth in that. Now what the Labor Relations Board has ruled is, and it's for the first time, is that if in the course of run-up to an election, management is found to violate uh, labor practices to violate the law, say by firing uh, the, the union organizers. You can't, that's against the law. If they do that, this new ruling says that means that the uh, management has lost the election by default. 
they can no longer object. We assume that the workers will win, and we grant the workers' representation, the union represents through the union that was bringing the uh, election uh, request. Well, that's enormously important, because what that says to management is, uh, gee, if we interfere, if we fire workers, it's no longer going to be that we just got uh, a reprimand. It's going to be that we have to negotiate with this union that the union is going to be officially recognized by the National Labor Relations Board, which has the legal authority to do that. Well, that's a major development, which just happened last week. And uh, in the case uh, that was a construction company, construction materials firm, uh, Semex, uh, I think in, in Georgia or Tennessee, I can't remember exactly where it was. But the National Labor Relations Board took that step in order to say to management, we're really serious about this. Workers have rights. You can't mess with them. You can't go in here and just fire people and think that nothing is going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to lose that by default. And that's a very, very important new development. It does not, however, require management and the union to come to an agreement on the contract. And that's what you and I have talked about before. It's a very important weakness in this whole process. Okay, the union wins an election. The law says you have to negotiate in good faith, but there's no teeth in that, really. And as long as management, uh, you know, is uh, pretending like they're negotiating, they don't actually have to come to an agreement. There's no required arbitration. There's no required intervention to force a contract to be ratified. So you have a situation, and this is uh, what we see in these Starbucks elections and in uh, some of the uh, Amazon elections where workers win, but then they can't get a contract. Management just won't come to terms with, on a contract. After, you know, two years, three years, people uh, who are working there are no longer working there, or they're thinking, geez, you know, we voted for a union and they can't get anything. So what the hell do we need a union for? And uh, that's a very big uh, problem that continues. Right. And the National Labor Relations Board has no pathway to solving that problem? They have no pathway to force a solution on it. That's right, it seems. Well, we will be following that, you know, in terms of like what strategies unions and grassroots organizing can maybe come up with to combat that problem. That's really could be fatal to this upsurge in in unionization that's happening. So let's turn to an interesting thing that I came across in your book, The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret. It was a discussion of the concept of the individual versus the collective in societal structures. I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, how does an individual-centric society lead to the blossoming of greed to the detriment of society as a whole and in fact to the individual ultimately and you know this plays into the whole notion of what people have to do to actually trust each other enough to have solidarity across in some cases class lines but race racial and economic lines to form unions in the first place can you just expand a little bit more on what you were getting at there with your deconstruction of the word greed. Well, the, the question about individualism 
is one of the limits of it. In this new book that I've got that you mentioned, this class, race, and gender book that's just coming out, uh, you know, I tell this story back in the Cultural Revolution in China back in the 1960s and early 1970s. There was a big struggle in China about which is the correct way to think. Is it public first, self second, or public first, self not at all? And, of course, the self, the public first, self not at all, was said to be the true socialist path and uh, the viewpoint public first self second was thought to be just a continuation and a hanging on of the individualism of capitalist society that we have to get rid of you know and i th- thought about that for a long time and i thought they're both wrong uh, because what you need is self first but for the public interest and for the public good so what's the point of self first that's to me the real question if it's self-first, full stop, that's where you get into this greed and you get into this just me, 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 myself, and I. And that's very destructive because the world isn't actually organized that way. Society isn't organized that we're all just individuals. We are individuals in a collective social setting, in a collective social environment network. So, for example, if you get on an airplane and you sit down, and before you take off, the, the crew gets on the uh, sound system, and they say, if the oxygen level falls, you know, the, the mask will fall down. Put it on yourself before you put it on your child or your neighbor. Well, what does that say? That says you put it on yourself first in order to make sure that you're okay, and then you help someone else. It isn't you put it on yourself and then you look to your neighbor and say, what's the matter with you while they're struggling to get air? (laughs) You know, it's the same thing in the fire service and EMS and first responder stuff, which I've trained at uh, in the fire department out in Southold uh, in Suffolk County. We get trained and very early when you roll up to a scene, your first obligation is to yourself to keep yourself safe, to make sure that you've got the, the turnout gear, that you've got your mask on, that you've got your tools and your uh, apparatus in shape so that when you go to do your work, you can actually help other people and you don't fall over because you're not prepared or you didn't uh, protect yourself, and now you're part of the problem instead of part of the solution. Well, all of that says is you have to take care of yourself But it isn't just because you're the only thing that's important. You take care of yourself so that you will be in a position, so that you will have the capacity to help other people. So that's why I think self-first, but in the public interest, rather than self-first, full stop, is the way to think about the relationship of the individual to the society as a whole. Because if you think that you're just in the world on your own and all you have to do is just look after yourself and the hell with everybody else, that's their problem, you're just going to live a very dysfunctional life. It can't be that way because it isn't true. Yeah, and I I think in modern, I guess some people refer to as late-stage capitalism, there is the corporate ethos that corporations and the board of directors first (laughs) and everybody else take a hike and just fend for yourself. And I think that the question is, what kind of regulations, what kind of structure is really necessary 
to make sure that capitalism isn't just a hell-bent race to the bottom in terms of paying everybody the, the lowest wages and getting the most productivity out of them for the least amount of compensation. So as we wrap up here, Michael, I know this is a, a pretty complex point that you make in your book, uh, The Working Class Majority, but why don't you uh, just see what you might bounce off of that? Well, I think, you know, you're talking about the competition that businesses have with each other that drives down living standards, drives down wages, drives down conditions of of labor and uh, benefits and so on. It doesn't have to be that way. Even within capitalism, it doesn't have to be that way. Because what you have to do is find ways to have uh, businesses compete, but not by destroying labor. So you have to take wages out of competition. Now, how do you do that? Well, you have a very substantial minimum wage. So there are things that you wages, you just can't drive them down any further because there's a law that says you have to pay people a living wage. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is just to say we're going to have industry-wide bargaining or sector bargaining instead of company by company. The whole auto industry is going to sit down and negotiate a contract with the auto workers. The whole steel industry, the whole hotel workers, uh, hotel industry and hospitality, they're going to negotiate a master contract for all of them so that each particular employer doesn't have to worry that they're paying more than their competitor because they're all paying the same because that's what the contract says or that's what the law says. So you can structure competition so that workers are protected from that so that businesses compete by actually producing a better product or by giving better service or by having more convenient uh, service uh, uh, centers uh, scattered around the the city or the country. There are all kinds of ways for people uh, in business to compete with each other that are actually uh, productive, that are actually constructive. It doesn't have to be that it's only by, or the easiest way is by just uh, throttling your labor force and driving their conditions of life into into the toilet. It doesn't have to be that way. Now, it is that way now because corporate power is so high, high and so hard and so ruthless. But with this upsurge of labor that we just were talking about earlier this uh, uh, today, uh, well, you know, maybe there'll be enough power, enough pressure uh, exerted to resist that and to structure new ways of businesses uh, doing business and competing that are limited through contracts, through government regulation, that are enforced by a popular movement that demands and insists on it. Michael, it's been great to have you on this uh, first edition of the uh, WPKN Labor Report, which we're going to do every month, and we'll have you back next month. But I think the point is for this segment that we're going to be doing each month is to keep our eye on the ball instead of just having it be like labor is too boring to talk about, you know, or labor is too radical to talk about. And I think that that is what's been happening in our corporate media. It's uh, been going on for, I guess, I don't know, a couple of decades now. And I think we, uh, in our own little way here, we're going to try to uh, change that. Well, I think it's so important to do, to keep track of what's actually happening, but then also to look below what's actually happening at the surface to see what are the underlying dynamics of power and the structure of power in the society that cause these things to happen. And I think that's uh, what we've been talking about a little bit today, and we'll continue to explore both elements of that, the actual events 
and then what's driving those events. Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Zweig, Professor Emeritus at State University of New York at Stony Brook. Thank you, Michael. Talk to you soon. Yep. Take care. Bye.